We have a special guest with us, but I'm Annalie, one of your co-hosts, my other co-host, Mila Deshant, and our guest today is Kiana Laws. She's an attorney with the EEOC, so we have a couple questions for her, and we're hoping just to have like a really good discussion today, so I can kick us off. So if you could, Kiana, just like kind of explaining your work and like the day in the life of someone who works like in the EEOC. Sure. Well, first, uh, thank you all for having me. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, <clears throat> so I'm a trial attorney and uh, a day in the life for me is a little different from some of the other, uh, some of the other positions we have at the agency. The EOC, just general background, we are the federal agency uh, that is in charged with uh, by Congress to investigate uh, workplace discrimination in for companies who have more than 15 employees. And uh, once we conduct our investigation, if we find that there is discrimination, then we are then have the authority to prosecute those companies in federal court. As a trial attorney, my role is to first work with investigators and provide them with any legal guidance or legal counsel during their investigations that may be needed. And if they were to find that there was a cause that discrimination occurred in that instance, then they would transfer the file over to me and I'd make a decision whether or not we should move forward prosecuting the employer. If so, then that's when I go forward and file a lawsuit in federal court and then take all the steps necessary to either secure a settlement or uh, take the case to trial. Perfect. I have a quick question. You mentioned about uh, discrimination and that is uh, inherently present in the workplace, right? And ever so now, most organizations or businesses are striving so hard to build that company culture, that really safe, healthy company culture. And yet we see discrimination in multifacets, um, age discrimination, especially in a multi-generation uh, landscape, right? We have the Gen Z, we have got the millennials, the Zennials, the baby boomers, and do I forget a generation? X generation. <laughs> Right, and that's a reoccurring thing, even on LinkedIn, even during my corporate tenure. Right, age was one of the facets uh, where people would be speaking about if we had have a, a 40 year old for promotion, they would rather promote the 25 year old, mm -hmm. saying that they are much more creative, right? Just based on the generation, and then we have got harassments uh, coming in the form of. of bullying right and bullying is just not single faceted but multifaceted my question to you is that how can we okay first question <laughs> why is the harassment right why is the harassment or discrimination present now i mean i can understand years ago we didn't have the education we didn't have the tools but now we do have the tools we do have the education we do have the resources we can connect with someone in China or Afghanistan or Iraq in, in matters of a second. But this is so prevalent, discrimination in forms of harassment, racism, age, it's all present mm -hmm. in the workplace. My first question is, why is it? My second question is, how can we shift that needle? 
All right, so that's a very good question. And you actually uh, touched upon one of the issues in terms of the answering the why question. <clears throat> so you're correct that a number of employers, especially larger employers, now have made significant strides in trying to become more diverse, whether it's with respect to race, uh, with respect to, um, to trying to be more inclusive with respect to gender, uh, ableism, uh, all of these issues that you're correct that years ago people just were not cognizant of. So they're, they're making great strides. Uh, to be completely honest, a lot of the cases that we see and the cases that end up in lawsuits these days are your smaller companies. So your companies that have maybe between 50 and 200 employees. And a lot of times those companies are companies in which they start off small, your traditional stereotypical mom and pop operation, and they just had significant growth over a very short amount of time. And in those situations, a lot of time for the business owners, because their priorities, their business, a lot of these human relations and human resources functions simply falls by the wayside and gets lost in the shuffle. It just isn't out of priority. And so what we'll see a lot of times when we conduct these investigations and when we move forward into litigation, we see that this was just a situation where you had a person in a position who was not qualified or not experienced who was handling the problem. I'll give you an example. One case that I settled recently was one of these such companies. They had a very small organization in the 80s and in the 90s and early 2000s. They grew, started buying up a lot of larger, uh, a lot of smaller companies. And their HR function just fell by the wayside and they end up promoting someone into an, a significant HR role who did not have the experience or education or training for that role. As a result, she made some decisions regarding a employee uh, who had a need for medical leave uh, as a result of a significant health condition. And that employee was terminated as opposed to given an accommodation. Of course, we found that there was cause that she was discriminated against and that, that the company violated the Americans with Disabilities Act because of how they treated this employee. And then we proceeded with uh, a lawsuit against this company. And in going through the discovery process, what we found was, as I said, this person was simply not qualified for the position. She was uh, put in there. She just wasn't given any training by her employer. And unfortunately, she made the wrong decision and it happened to cost her, her company tens of thousands of dollars as a result. So a lot of times you, you, we, we see these instances where people are, are just in these positions and, and they really should not be. I mean, unfortunately, HR, when it comes to a lot of companies, it's, it's a budget line item that doesn't get a lot, of, um, a lot of recognition because it doesn't add to the company's bottom line. It, it in fact costs, right, to do training and do things the right way, it costs money. And so a lot of companies, again, especially ones that are growing, um, that's something that they simply don't prioritize. And so one of the things we try to do is outreach. And we, we, know we have these outreaches where we meet with local HR organizations, we meet with local business groups to try to get the word out, to try to inform them on best practices. And our website is a very, very good resource for uh, small business owners. We actually have a section for small business owners uh, that they can go to and they can uh, look and go through our Q&A section uh, on, on issues that commonly occur with, with small businesses. 
And so we've tried, one of the ways I think we can combat some of these issues is information and just making sure people have better training. Uh, the other issue is a lot of times it's not necessarily a culture at an employer, but you simply have one bad apple. You have a person who is uh, in that key position, a key supervisory managerial position, and they are simply treating their employees poorly, or they're allowing discrimination to happen, or they're allowing harassment to happen. And so in those cases, you have a company that may have very good policies on paper, but you just have one person who is not implementing those policies uh, in terms of treating employees um, in, a, in a fair and non-discriminatory manner. Wow, that was a lot. That was really, really cool. Because that's what I was, when I was kind of thinking about like what you were saying, one thing that came to me, particularly on like the last point you were talking about, is that what I hear more and more from like people in who are a little bit older, a little seasoned in like workplaces, they'll be like, you know, people your age are really, really sensitive. Like I've heard from so many people, like your generation is too sensitive. Like if you guys just like, if you knew how it was for us, like you would just get over it really quickly. And so I'm just kind of wondering, like, do you hear that like through maybe like the discovery process? Like when you get all like this information and kind of the facts of the case, does that come up a lot? The youth issue is, is not so much an issue in terms of the victims because uh, our, the law that we enforce is the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. And the minimum age for, uh, for, to be covered under that law is 40 years old. So what we're more likely to hear in that situation would be a person who's over the age of 40 who's complaining to us and saying, these, you know, maybe I have a younger supervisor or I have a younger, um, a younger coworker who's making comments towards me. A lot of times we hear comments such as, when are you going to retire? haven't you been here long enough? Uh, do you think you can still keep up? Those types of things. So that's, those are the type of instances and, and comments that we deal with uh, in our line of work. Okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, so I kind of like think about you, like what kind of drives you to like keep doing this work? Like what is, like, is it really just kind of like this idea? Like, you know, it's like a personal mission to like kind of like repair the world and this is how I'm going to like fight discrimination. Like what keeps you motivated like every day to keep doing this? Well, a lot of it has to do with the victims that we work with, the claimants. Uh, you, you in, in this business, you see a lot and you hear a lot and you uh, are exposed to a lot. Uh, the, the worst instances of workplace discrimination when it comes to race, when it comes to sexual harassment. Uh, so knowing that the people that that we are helping that's that's motivation knowing that there's a person who was in a horrible situation uh at work and they stood up and said i i'm complaining i'm filing a charge with the eoc and then that person gets fired you want to do the right thing for that person because you want to you want to do what you can to to make that person whole again uh, if you have a situation and i've i've litigated a number of equal pay cases where you have a woman who comes to us and says, I know I'm being paid less than my male coworkers who are doing the same job. That's motivation because you have a, a person who is in, this, in, in a, a workplace day in, day out, working next to someone, and she knows she's being paid less than that person. Those are things that are, are, are motivating for me. Awesome. Because um, that's what I kind of, like, I'm thinking about, like, this entire thing. Like, if, I just think of, like, if there's, like, a woman of color, like, seeing, like, the um, interconnectedness of like oppression how do we like if we see like how do we connect and how do we like 
build other networks to like help lift people up like what would you recommend to like someone who's younger how do we start like vocalizing if we are feeling discriminated against like if i'm too afraid to like step up and say something what are like places to start well uh most companies uh at least good companies and companies of, of a certain size will have an internal process and a lot of companies these days, as we talked about them taking, making strides in diversity and inclusion, some companies are even developing committees or groups uh, that are geared towards certain uh, categories, uh, categories of people, say, for example, employees of color or uh, women employees, these kind of sort of internal networking groups. So some companies are, are actually taking that next step and, and providing formal opportunities for these employees to get together and through those opportunities you can of course have those kind of conversations with your colleagues to say this is what i'm experiencing does this sound right to you or have you experienced something similar do you know of anyone else who's experienced this kind of uh, situation so uh, those kind of networks can be helpful uh, of course if you are if the employee is is in a situation where they are s suffering significant harm, harassment, discrimination, they should, of course, seek out either the EEOC or uh, the local um, EEOC office. So we, almost every state has a, a, a state EEOC equivalent. They're all called different things, but your state EEO office. Um, so those are a couple of ways. And, and today, you know, the EEOC, we're, we're actually finally modernizing ourselves. So everything is done online. You can sign up for an appointment online. You can submit your charge online. We're trying to make this process a little easier and take down some of those barriers um, that may be there for other people. Perfect. Perfect. So I want to touch on Annalise's point and your point. You mentioned about um, you know, you help victims, and Anna, you brought up about you know making that stride um, in in shifting that whole action, right? And I know that I've personally experienced um, really toxic environment during my corporate tenure. And when someone is being a victim, there's another facet that there's always the other side of the coin: how people perceive them, how they dehumanize and demonize their character, mm -hmm. and to be already in that position of being a victim and then to, to, to get in a compound and bombarded with this uh, stop playing the victim game, how can someone maintain their sanity, right? Because someone's identity can corrode, someone's voice can be eliminated by this toxic environment and mistreatment. And how can we truly flip the script when I say flip the script, it's not like, oh, I didn't need to be a victim, but really helping people who are in victim positions, like to really telling them and ensuring them it's not in your head. You know, it's you are not in the wrong, especially I see a lot of uh, my ex-colleagues who are women of color, where, mm -hmm. you know, they are labeled as the angry colored person if they voice out something. Mm -hmm. And... And how can we truly ensure that, you know, you're not the angry colored person for voicing it and you don't need to demonize someone else for being a victim at, at, when they can't help themselves. Because sometimes when you're in a situation, it happens literally, right? It's like putting a frog in a pot of water and in, increasing, the, increasing what, I've not done this, but I'm just giving this a, as an example. So, 
how can we, what kind of advice do you have for anyone, you know, who is a victim and they're trying to get out of the situation and facing more a defamation of their character by defaming and dehumanizing words from others? Mm -hmm. So in that situation, um, what we've seen, we have, uh, I, I've seen victims, claimants who come forward, uh, they try documenting things. Uh, these days, it's, it's pretty easy to document things in your email. Uh, we have victims who come to us and they actually have uh, tape recordings or now your cell phone recording. So I, I've had a number, that's in the past probably two to three years where they've actually recorded these people. And so uh, that, of course, strengthens the case because the person is saying something to you and, it, and, and it's, it's not in your head, it's on tape. We can hear it. An objective person can listen to this and say, that doesn't sound right to me. Uh, we have situations where the, once a person has initiated their EEOC charge, perhaps you know, maybe they're still working, but they're, under, they're, they're being uh, subjected to harassment there are times when they will email the EEOC investigator and forward emails that they're receiving from the harasser or from the, the boss who's mistreating them. So, and the EEOC investigator can say, okay, we have this for our file. We've, we've now documented this. And so, so those are ways, and, and certainly it, it, it's not a, the person is still experiencing this and it's certainly traumatic and upsetting as they're going through it. But I think there is a little bit of, of help and, and a sense of relief that, hey, there's someone else here who's on my side, who has my back, and they, they see what I'm going through through these emails, and they hear what I'm going through through these, um, these phone recordings. Now, certainly, I'm not advocating for anyone to take those steps. I'm just giving examples of things that I've seen in the past. I'm also, like, as you're kind of talking, I'm thinking about um, who are kind of the workers that are, like, I guess the least likely to contact you? Do you find that maybe like more white collar workers contact the EEOC? Like, I'm just kind of curious about like the intersections between, you know, like class and like are more educated people like having these resources or maybe people who like work in factories not really contact or do they not feel empowered? And also like, what are kind of the role of, you know, if there's unions at all and like, you know, workers groups being able to advocate? Mm-hmm. So uh, unions do play a role, and in, in certain parts of the country where we have offices, uh, unions are more prevalent and are involved because you have employees who are filing these union grievances against harassers or against the discriminatory uh, official, and then they're coming to the EEOC either after the grievance or maybe even during the grievance process. So unions do certainly play a role. Uh, with respect to who are we seeing come through our doors, well, certainly, so the EEOC, um, there are certainly, uh, I would say, more blue-collar um, employees who we see, hourly workers who are going to file charges. Also, keeping in mind that the EEOC, we are the first stop if you are in, if, if you have a, own your own private attorney and you want to file one day a, a lawsuit in federal court. You have to come to the EEOC first, you have to file a charge. So you're more likely to see, say, a, um, a high-level executive or a white-collar employee who's making a significant amount of money. They would be the type of person who'd go out, get their own attorney, 
to represent them privately and they would file a charge with the EEOC and then they would eventually move into federal court on their own and probably they would move in pretty quickly before we a lot of times before we've even completed our own investigation because they have the means to do that on the other hand the major, vast majority of people the vast majority of charges we see are people who are coming in they don't have their own private attorneys and uh, they are initiating the charge process with us we're investigating the charge and then we again make that determination whether that we think there's discrimination or not and at that point a lot of people then say okay you guys found discrimination um, can you give me what's called a right to sue letter which is a, a, a form letter and it says the EOC has found reasonable cause to you know conclude that you were subjected to discrimination or harassment or whatever the situation was and they then take that letter to a private attorney and a lot of private attorneys at that point are interested in getting involved because they have that um, that letter saying okay the, the EEOC agrees with this person let's move forward I I love what you just shared of you know the steps to to you know moving forward and that made me think about power right um, Power exists in many forms and it lies in everyone's hands. Mm -hmm. uh, it lies in the employer's hands, employee's hands, and even in the victim's hands. But I'm curious to learn from your perspective, you know, how does power exist you know, from your line of work? How do you, how do you see power being manifested um, you know, from victims to in organizations? Um, is it, how like, I don't even know how to <laughs> to go deep into this. Like like on one hand, like you mentioned, organizations are taking great strides to change the culture, and then small organizations, which I was absolutely shocked to hear, right? Like the ninety to two hundred people, those are the organizations where problems arise, where where they are trying to struggle with it. it does power become more prominent and with the size of an organization or just power become more prominent with the status of a title and how can we truly take strides as to telling everyone in an organization everyone has got equal power um, and you can make a change so i want to hear your thoughts on that well i think one of the ways to um it, and I, I want to, it's not, I, I guess it's not so much, I would say that it's, it's a person having power, it's a person who has power and it corrupts them and corrupts them to the point that they feel it's okay to harass or to discriminate um, an employee to the, to the point that it rises to discrimination that violates one of the laws that we cover. So I think one of the ways the, the, in terms of best practices for companies, regardless of company size, is to make sure the proper checks and balances are in place. So that a person who is, say, a manager and has a management team, there should be a check or a balance that their, their, their supervisor or another supervisor, some sort of counterweight to make sure that that person is not abusing their power with respect to their team. And also companies uh, do have an obligation that when they are, are confronted with these complaints internally, uh, they have an obligation to do an investigation and they have an obligation if, if, you, if you are a company and you're a, a, perhaps an HR person, human resources uh, official in a company and you're receiving multiple complaints about a specific manager, 
you have an obligation to, to step forward and say, okay, this is not just an isolated incident. We may have a bad apple here. We may have a person who is in this position of power and that power is corrupting them. So at that point is when uh, we would hope a company would step in with, again, with that check and, and, and take care of the situation and if necessary, remove that person from the position. So I think that's probably one of the ways that companies can combat that issue is making sure that the person who's in power isn't taking advantage of the, the people who are not in power. And also remembering for the people who are not in power to remember, no, you're not a manager. You, you, yes, maybe you're an hourly employee, but you still have a voice and there's still an, an opportunity for you to make your, your complaint heard, your concern heard uh, if you're experiencing these issues in the workplace. Beautifully sharp. <laughs> no, I'm writing down like so many notes. I have like a long list of notes. I'm like, everything is just so, there's just so much, much information. Cause I think about like me being somebody who's like younger, like, you know, a younger person. I'm like, wow, there's so many times where you're just like, everyone knows everything. Like, what do I know? What can I actually contribute? And like, what are actually my like workplace rights? Cause I think it's so easy to like, kind of go on with like, you know, shuffling along and like people can kind of mislead you. So I guess for me, I'm like, how do I, like, who do I know I can kind of trust with like the right information? Like, like where can I kind of find like this information if I'm like a young person or maybe like, you know, say Mila, maybe you work for like a new company. Like, how do we know like what are actually like good practices, not good practices? Cause I feel like that's kind of intimidating. Sure, of, of course, I, I, I can completely understand. And uh, for, I mean, for me, I came out of law school knowing this information because this was when I, when I graduated, this was an area that I, was, I, I wanted to specialize in eventually. So uh, I made it a point to take those classes. So I knew probably a lot more than say my average um, person my age who didn't have the, the, the benefit of going to law school and learning all this. But I would say one of the best resources out there is our website. Uh, so it's eeoc.gov. Uh, we're also on Twitter. I do not know the Twitter handle off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but we're on Twitter. I'm pretty sure we're on Facebook as well. And uh, the EOC website is a great resource because, again, as a federal organization, we have an obligation to be transparent. You know, and so everything that we do, all the lawsuits we file, uh, they're there for anyone to look up and see if, if these companies are bad actors, if they've ever been sued by the EEOC, if they've ever settled a lawsuit by the EEOC. Um, the, the website also has a section where it lists what laws we cover. And, and I'm not sure if I covered that earlier, but I'll, so I, I will now, but uh, the EEOC enforces the uh, Equal Pay Act, e the EPA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, uh, GINA, which is the Genetic Information Non-Discriminatory Act, and Title VII. And Title VII is, uh, covers pregnancy, covers uh, sex, race, color, religion, um, and, and the uh, individual statutes such as the ADA, um, Title VII, they also have components of retaliation um, uh, enforcement uh, provisions to them as well. So uh, if a person is being retaliated against because they ask for reasonable accommodation, for example, that's covered by the ADA. 
So the, the website lists all of these laws. It goes into an explanation about what the laws are. Uh, it says, you know, if I'm an employee, what are my rights? And it, it will list it out to you. Um, it details when employers are covered by these, law, by these laws. Um, the EEOC, we enforce these laws against companies who have 15 or more employees. Um, so the EEOC's uh, website is a great resource, and I would encourage anyone who is uh, interested in learning more about what their workplace rights are, uh, what's appropriate, what isn't, to go through our website. And also, as I mentioned earlier, also small business owners. We have specific sections on uh, if you're a small business owner, what are things I need to be concerned about? For example, one of the issues we've seen over the past probably five to 10 years, you have an aging population, an aging workforce. And so it, it, as you mentioned earlier, there's the issue with age discrimination in the workplace. But as you have an aging workforce, you also have additional medical complications by those employees and medical impairments. And so we've seen a, a really explosion of uh, disability discrimination complaints over the years. And, <clears throat> excuse me, as I said, over the past five to 10 years, one of the issues that we see repeatedly are employees um, who are terminated uh, because their FMLA leave expires. But if they have a disability, that's not the end of the story. Just terminating them because of FMLA isn't proper. You still have to give that person a reasonable accommodation. You have to engage in the interactive process. One of the issues we've seen over the years is this intersection, this interplay between the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, and the ADA. And a lot of employers, again, simply not being informed, not informing themselves, not being educated on the laws and how they intersect with each other. We've seen a lot of employees who uh, are unfortunately terminated because these employers don't have, they, they do not take the time to learn this information. So again, we've tried to make really, really um, significant strides in updating our website and keeping uh, the public informed of making it as accessible as possible for HR officials as well as employees so they can find out the information to, to uh, make sure that these problems do not continue to happen in the workplace because uh, we would love to, to wake up one day and find out that, hey, there's no more discrimination. You know, we're, we, we have to close our doors. <laughs> that would be great. Um, so those are some of the things that we do to, to try to help that, that mission. You mentioned about FMLA, and um, I, I found myself in, in that situation a few years ago. I was part of a Fortune 500 company, and, and um, well, my family, they do not live in the U.S. They live in a different country. And my mom was not feeling too good. Her heart was taking a toll. And when I communicated this to my manager, you know, she was like, oh, too bad you can take your off days, all of your vacation days. Mm -hmm. and, and then I was thinking, should I come to a point to take my holidays to go see my mum, uh, and I and I was aware of the FMLA because one of my colleagues mentioned to me like, no, you know, you can tap into this. And then another layer came up about you know you need to release your mum's medical records. But being internationally, right, there are different rules and laws applies to different hospitals releasing medical uh, information to prove that 
I need to go on this leave. So how do you deal with those kind of situations since it's international waters? Right. So that was, that's an interesting uh, situation. And I think probably one that's rather um, uh, atypical. Um, but we, we do have instances, and again, we're seeing it more because we have, again, an aging population. So we're seeing more which uh, caregiver discrimination. And that's what you just described. Someone who is a, um, a child or perhaps a sibling um, or even a parent of someone who has a disability. Now we're seeing it, it, it for, for years, of course, we've, we saw when you have a parent who is caregiver of a child who has a serious health condition. Now we're seeing more children caring for their parents, their elderly parents, or even grandparents and having to be in this situation. So uh, that's one of the issues that probably 20 years ago, uh, the agency wasn't, uh, it, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't see those kind of charges. Now we're seeing those kind of charges. And, and that's another section we actually uh, put on our website within the probably past two to three years, a section on uh, what are, what are some resources? What are some questions? If, if you have these questions, what are some answers, or typical answers, a frequently asked question section for caregivers, for people who believe that they're experiencing caregiver discrimination? And uh, so if someone's in that situation, I, I strongly suggest that they go to the website. They can, they can review that information and see if it gives them some additional guidance and answers. Um, in your specific situation, I'm not sure I would know um, the answer to that question because uh, that again although these these issues are we want to make sure these companies are staying within the parameters of the law they still have their own internal processes for verifying information when it comes to medical leave and so um, and it's also important to remember that the EEOC itself we do not enforce the FMLA that is actually a different government agency uh, we only get involved if you have that intersection between the FMLA and the ADA. That's good information to have. <laughs> <laughs> I want to touch on one more thing that you mentioned about earlier, retaliation. Mm -hmm. and, um, retaliation manifests in so many different matters and it's so multifaceted. Uh, retaliation can come in the form of like someone asking, uh, questions uh, as to you know getting leave approved or even when when in terms of promotion and I recently I was speaking with a friend of mine and he's 56 years old and he was recently let go mm -hmm. and and I was curious to learn why was there such a, a decision made on on his company's part and he shared that oh my my director shared that my role was no longer needed. Mm -hmm. And and then I started digging deeper into why was your role eliminated? And he further shared that, you know, there was some uh, disagreements because of how projects were done mm -hmm. and how, um, in fact, his team was, was performing really well and a new manager or doctor came in and started retaliating in ways like this, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's a form of retaliation, but it is kind of like illusionized in such a way that we are eliminating your role because this is no longer needed in our company. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with those kind of situations? Because it happens so quickly. It happened within a week where 
my friend had no kind of help of didn't know whom to turn to. It happened within a week. And how do you deal with those kind of retaliations? Right, that's a good question. So first, I'll, I'll start off by saying that under uh, the laws that I've described earlier, uh, retaliation is comprised of basically th three, three things. Uh, for it to be legal, it, to meet like the legal standard of, of retaliation under one of those laws. So first, you have to have uh, protected activity. So protected activity is either uh, filing a complaint, whether it's an internal complaint, filing a, a complaint with the EEOC, but filing a complaint or participating in the investigation of a complaint, again, whether it's internal or external. So that's a protected activity. So basically a person has to speak up or they have to, on behalf of themselves, or speak up in, on behalf of someone else or participate on behalf of someone else. And even if the person is involved in the investigation, say for example, they are a witness uh, or they are asked to give a witness statement for an investigation, even if that person says, I didn't see anything, I don't know anything, and they genuinely don't, and they are then later maybe terminated because they were simply identified as a witness, that would still be retaliation. So the first, the first step is engage in the protected activity. The second step is there has to be a adverse employment action. And adverse employment action when it comes to retaliation means something a little different than it does when we're talking about discriminatory actions. So in discrimination, uh, adverse employment action means a termination, a demotion, um, <clears throat> a change in status, for example. Uh, something, um, something in which there is a, a significant employment change. But in retaliation, the standard's a little different. So in retaliation, adverse employment action is anything that could discourage someone else from engaging in protected activity. So the standard is essentially a little lower. So for example, uh, when you're talking about discrimination, being put on a performance improvement, improvement plan, a PIP, would not necessarily qualify in most, in most jurisdictions. It wouldn't qualify for uh, an adverse employment action in a discrimination case, but it may qualify in a retaliation case because that is something being put on a PIP would discourage someone else from speaking up, all right? So that's the second component of retaliation. The third component is there has to be a causal connection between the first and the second actions. So there has to be a causal connection between the complaint, the speaking up, and the adverse employment action. And the easiest way to do that is if when we look at windows of time. So if someone makes a complaint and then they're uh, given a bad performance review within a week, you're gonna have your, your causal connection. Um, so, so those are the, the steps for retaliation. So keep in mind that uh, whenever you have situations uh, where a person may, they may experience something in the workplace, um, it may not constitute, uh, they may not have, or they may, they may have said something, it may not con constitute protected activity. And when we say uh, protected activity, when we say they're, they're making a complaint, it's a complaint against that they are experiencing discrimination, they are seeing discrimination, uh, they're speaking up against an alleged discriminatory act, something else that's covered under one of these laws. They're speaking up against harassment that they've witnessed. Um, they're speaking up because they're a supervisor who's been told, 
I have to terminate this person because of their race, for example. So, so those are the instances in which uh, retaliation um, would be triggered. And so those are, those are the things that we would look for. And <clears throat> so those are, there are instances in which people, I mean, folks do complain all, all the time about their workplace and things that they don't believe are right. Uh, things that they disagree with, but it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of becoming a protected activity such that it would trigger the protection under under the retaliation laws. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. You went deep. I love that. Hazard <laughs> <laughs> <are> the professions. <laughs> that sounds like, and you explain it in like regular terms, you know, layman's terms, because I'm like, you know, some of that legal stuff, I'm like, I like know about like political science, but like legal stuff, I'm like, yeah. You know, I need someone to explain it very clear. Um, one thing that like I thought is we're talking about like a lot of people who can, are protected under laws. Like what if someone is like undocumented or if someone is like an international worker, like say they're getting discriminated on the job, what kind of protections do they have? So uh, that's an interesting question. And uh, I have dealt with, with those cases. The EEOC does have a number, has over the years handled a number of those cases. Um, immigration status uh, should not dissuade anyone from filing a charge. I know I'm hesitant because I know it does. Let's, I mean, we're all living in the real world. So we know realistically there are people who are hesitant to file charges because of their immigration status, but it should not. They should feel free to come forward and to, uh, if they're experiencing harassment and discrimination, they really should. <clears throat> uh, in fact, um, these undocumented workers are a particular group uh, for the EEOC um, that is one of the groups that we are uh, over the years have made um, one of our strategic priorities to make sure that they are um, informed of their rights, to make sure that if we get charges from them that those charges are um, certainly uh, scrutinized because uh, in certain situations like this <clears throat> you do have employers who are what we would call frequent flyers you know, a lot of times where they have discriminated against, you know, employees repeatedly over the years. So the EEOC has made a priority when it comes to undocumented workers, just making sure that those, those charges, those instances um, are, are reviewed and are, are, you know, may need an additional level of scrutiny. And also with a sensitivity to uh, the documentation status, their immigration status. Um, what we see uh, with, um, that population, unfortunately, is a lot of sexual harassment um, to the point that there's been uh, documentaries made, um, a couple of them recently, and documenting and talking about the significant amount of sexual harassment and sexual assaults that occur uh, against women who are uh, undocumented workers, and they're targeted because of that status. And a lot of times in cases that I've, I've seen and worked with, um, you have a um, say a, a foreman or a mid-level manager who is out there in the fields with the the primarily female workforce, and as we talked about before, the power. So this is a person who is in, in you know, who has this power to be out there, and he's the one who takes advantage of it by sexually harassing and in, in some instances sexually assaulting women um, in in their in their workplace. And the only way we know about it is when women are uh, brave enough to come forward and let us know and so that we can step in and <clears throat> the EOC is one of the number of agencies because we are a law enforcement agency so 
we are one of the many law enforcement agencies that's empowered to issue U visas. Uh, U visa is a specific type of visa uh, that will allow a person who has um, undocumented status but is a victim of a crime or a key witness of a crime to have that um, visa that will protect them from any sort of uh, immigration action while this is going forward. And uh, so we do issue those and <clears throat> if necessary, and we've had these cases before, where we have just had to identify these women as Jane Doe's to protect their status and to protect their, their identity going forward. But uh, that's not a barrier to our investigation. It should not be a barrier to them coming in and filing a charge. That makes me feel so much better because as you're just saying this and I'm like, I mean, I've seen it, you know, you hear it where like women will talk about like, especially like having seen like undocumented women being like, yo, just don't go by that guy. Don't go by that guy because you know how it is. So it makes me, I'm like, and that information, I don't think I've ever heard anyone, you know, talk about like the accessibility of you visas. So mm -hmm. that makes me feel so like so much better, but it's just like, man, I have to like, I don't know, post on every social media I have so I can like let women know. Um, and you know, men too, and everyone <laughs> in between. Yeah. Um, so I'm also like, um, kind of curious, like also like kind of going into like future areas where we're, people are going to need more protections. Like how can we also protect, like thinking about people who are kind of like in these gray markets, like if people are like sex workers, but they're doing it on like, say Instagram or like on like Reddit and like those type of things, like, do you see like you guys starting to maybe like cover those or like, do you see like, is that even a possibility? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. Probably not because keep in mind our jurisdiction, so to speak, is only an employer who has more than 15 employees. Mm -hmm. So if a person was operating some sort of um, like their own enterprise uh, over like online, I'm not sure if uh, we would cover them, if, if that sort of enterprise would be covered. Uh, if not, <clears throat> certainly, if not by us, but maybe something like that would, would more, more than likely be covered by the DOJ. Um, so, and, and that's one of the things, the DOJ, because I've mentioned a couple of times that we only handle lawsuits or only handle charges against employers who have more than 15 employees. The DOJ is an organization who handles uh, lawsuits or handles charges uh, filed against uh, a workplace, an employer who has fewer than 15 employees. So I just put that out there too for, for folks who may be working in really, really small workplaces, but they're also experiencing some harassment or discrimination that uh, even though you wouldn't qualify for an EOC charge because our, our law just does not extend that far, uh, there is another organization out there that can provide you with uh, assistance and protection. That's the DOJ. So um, you talk about human trafficking, you know, it is uh, human trafficking month and we, we've, you know, have some programs <clears throat> about human trafficking. Uh, that is something that the EOC is, has been getting more involved in in terms of outreach and um, making, making everyone known that we're, we're here and we're available for those situations. How human trafficking would intersect with our agency, for example, is uh, if you have a situation that's essentially modern day slavery, you know, we've had some of those cases, uh, one or two, where employees were, were brought here under false pretenses and were isolated and kept in squalor conditions and uh, were paid very minimally, if at all. 
And so those were, that was a situation where we were able to um, <clears throat> have an investigation. Of course, we found that there was discrimination and then moved forward with a lawsuit. And the lawsuit was based on discriminatory pay practices, based on, in, in that particular instance, it was uh, national origin in addition to race and discrimination based on national origin, race, and harassment, because uh, those employees are also the kind of employees who are going to be subjected to racial slurs, possible uh, racial, uh, you know, maybe racist graffiti, and things like that, uh, in addition to those kind of conditions. So uh, that's how the EEOC um, and our mission with, would intersect with a, a situation like human trafficking. So I had to say kind of and I don't know if this is actually like a possibility. So you're talking about like frequent flyers in like terms of companies. Like do you guys also keep like a frequent flyer for like a person? So say like, you know, John Doe keeps jumping to company and company and the trail of like sexual harassment or like him saying like racial slurs, like keeps going with him. Like mm. what happens? Like, do you keep track of that at all? Uh, I wish we did. <laughs> uh, we're we're uh, not advanced enough uh, to at least at least keep track of it formally within the office and within the district. You can you, certainly those are things you can keep track of. Uh, and there are instances where you know we'll hear names, and I will say that name sounds familiar to me, and I'll go back to a prior investigation or a prior case to see, hey, is that person, <clears throat> you know, was this person involved in this one because it, uh, this name is coming up again, and that has happened. That has happened, yes. <laughs> that makes me sad that there are frequent flyers. Um, but I'm glad that you guys like have the structure because I I mean I like you know, you hear of like, you know, parts of like the federal government, different agencies, and I'm like EOC is something that I feel like I should learn more about and I've learned plenty about <laughs> just in like this many sessions. So I'm like very glad that there's like something for workers. So, you know, I think of like other workers, you know, like trans workers. Like, you know, you're learning more about like trans folks. And I was like, I just want to make sure that they also have protections because it's, I mean, there's people are afraid to stand up sometimes and like say things. So I'm glad that you guys exist. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, I, I learned a lot about the EEOC today. Um, you know, during my, my corporate tenure working for Fortune 500 company, I, I was so afraid to approach the EEOC because I found myself in dehumanizing toxic environment mm -hmm. and I always had that fear of I'm a foreigner and even though I had a, a PR status I was so afraid okay what if I apply for a citizenship am I going to get deported you know all these thoughts were going into my head uh, and and to have that information today from you gives so much of hope not just to prs right but to every human in the united states and you know our, our podcast mission is to humanize bring humanizing topics and we are huge advocates of how can we humanize every community of practice that we belong to mm -hmm. and one of the community of practice that we belong to largely is the workplace because right? <laughs> we spend yeah. like 70 to 80 percent of our day going to work preparing for work being at work and then coming back from work and even sometimes we don't stop thinking about work <laughs> unfortunately that's true yes <laughs> so it's it's really empowering to to hear you share that eeoc is here to humanize spaces and give someone a voice and empower someone and i have one more question for my Anna. As as a person of color, 
right? I'm, I'm always empowered to see other women of color do impactful and empowering stuff where they create a platform for others to have a voice. As a person of color and as a female, what advice do you have for other females out there or even males where, you know, that like, what kind of micro actions can we take to have a voice where we can lift each other up and not stay silent? <clears throat> That's a great question. Um, <laughs> as I touched upon earlier, those kind of networks, some of them that are coming online in companies formally, I'd also encourage people to, to create those networks informally around the workplace. I mean, if you're sitting in a workplace and you see people who look like you, speak to them. You know, to start start up those relationships, those networks, uh, so that you have that 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 voice, that that sounding board in the office, or you have just someone who, if you're having an experience with uh, someone who's not treating you um, fairly, you can just go to that person and say, "Does this sound right to you?" Or you can just go to that person and say, "You know what? I I need you're you're right now. You're my oasis because I'm I'm going through this with this this harasser. But I, can I just come sit with you for a little while and just you know, so I don't have to think about it. I don't have to deal with it. So, so that's, uh, those are some ways that you can kind of create that within your own little workplace. Um, for me personally, one of the things that helped me tremendously as I was a young attorney was having one of those networking groups. It was uh, a group of, of women of color who were attorneys and we would get together um, maybe every other month or so or, or every quarter, and we would sit there and share. And, and before I was introduced to this group, there were times where I thought, oh, this is only happening to me. Oh, I'm only experiencing this. I'm the only one. And then I would go to these meetings. I went to the first meeting and women are talking about it. And not only are they experiencing what I'm experiencing, but some of the same language that I'm hearing directed at me was also directed at them. And so it was, it was, disappointing that we were all, you know, we were all experiencing this, uh, but it was also helpful to, to, as you mentioned earlier, to recognize it's not just me. It's, it's not something that's in my head. I'm not, um, I, I'm not being gaslighted here. It's happening elsewhere. Uh, so, so being able to have that community is, is, is very uh, important and impactful. And so my advice would be to find it. And if you don't have it, whether in, in your company, then create it. I'm going to clap for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, because I was like, yay, she just yeah. answered my question too. Because I was like, just give advice, you know, <laughs> like, to young <laughs> It's super, super awesome. I'm, I'm just like so happy that we could have this space. And that's, I think that's why I like feel really glad is like, you know, creating these little spaces mm -hmm. where we can like bring so many different, you know, for me, like, you know, women, like women of color, I'm like, I just love hearing because I think, like, I just think about like, you know, all of like the women who are really important in my life, you know, it's like, you know, my mom, you know, women of color, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you guys are just like the best, right? Like, <laughs> I feel so empowered. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, I'm just so like, you know, blessed and I want to like cry a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was such an honor having you today on Human Becomings. And, and thank you, Amelie, for... <laughs> I hope you had a good time. Yeah. I hope you didn't feel like, oh, you know, so many questions. <laughs> like, but I had so many thoughts. So. No, not, not at all. You know, outreach is one of my, my favorite aspects of my job. Uh, it's it's one that sometimes we don't get to do as much as we'd like because we are uh, busy with the primary business of the EOC, which is uh, the law students or, or advising investigators. But 
Uh, I've tried to to make it a, a, a practice to um, have outreach and to in, get involved in outreach on a regular basis. So this was I, I really enjoy it, and this was a great opportunity for me to to speak to uh, to to a new audience and a, and a new medium. This is my first podcast, so thank you very much. For <laughs> I love the clap. <laughs> Cyberclap. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's truly it's truly empowering. It's truly empowering to have this information, and and to give hope to so many people, right? So many people out there are stuck in jobs. When I say stuck, they are in positions where I need this paycheck to put a roof over my head and my family's head. I need this paycheck to bring food, and they're stuck in situations where. They can't help themselves because the power of others who are in the wrong position mm -hmm. dehumanizes them. And to have your mind and your heart today has been so fantastic. And when I am in Wisconsin next time, Annalie and I will come down to Chicago. I'm volunteering Annalie to have a cup of tea <laughs> with you. I always go down there. I know oh, I'm oh. like racking up reasons to go. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I'm in Atlanta. Oh, you are in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I asked about Chicago because we were doing this in Central Times. So oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I love Atlanta. It's so it's such a cool place. My like favorite place is Anatolia's. I love okay. like going down there and like, you know, eating having good food <laughs> okay all right well, we, yeah no definitely when you guys are in atlanta let me know and we'll, we'll get together Absolutely. it's it's much closer to dc so honestly we're making yes. a trip to and Atlanta. it's warmer because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 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 yeah because i used to live in arkansas and one of my roommates she was she went to georgia state mm -hmm. and so we would go visit like because when they because she's an sg row so we went to like, you know, kind of their show when they had like, you know, the Greek weekend. So I like went there for that and like birthdays and I was like, it's just, a, it's a really cool city. Okay. All right. Well, if you were at Georgia State, you were actually not far from our office. We are oh, right really? there. We're neighbors <laughs> to Georgia State. Yes, we are. It's, it's fun. I like where it's like, you know, kind of right in the heart of downtown. So yes. Yeah. I was like, I felt like honorary Georgia State person. <laughs> like, okay. yeah. Great school. <laughs> well, thank you again. Um, I, I really appreciate you sharing your mind and your heart and your insight and your experience today. Well, thank, yeah, thank you, you so much. much for your time. I you're, appreciate you're it. Welcome. You're welcome. You're uh, very welcome. And I, I appreciate it again. Thank you very much for the invitation. And again, eeoc.gov, that's our website. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, go to that website. A lot of those questions will probably be answered. But if mm -hmm. you can't get answers, uh, if you need to file a charge, also on the website, there's the um, list of our, our offices, the addresses. You can uh, pull up directions and, and make an appointment and, and submit your charge digitally and, uh, and start the process. Uh, so I want to make sure that everyone who out there feels like they're being discriminated against know that they have, um, they have an avenue uh, to, to start the process and to start the the um, the end of whatever they're experiencing in terms of discrimination and harassment in their workplace. Fantastic. Thank you Thank again you. for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Let me.